the legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. So good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Cannabis Unlocked. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Ben Ross. Ben, how are you doing today? Doing great, Jordan. Awesome. So thanks so much for joining, Ben. Uh, For our listeners, Ben's a friend of mine who recently sold his software business, Power.io, to Pluribus Technologies uh, and is now spending his time uh, more focused on the psychedelics industry, which has always been uh, an area of, of mutual interest for us. And I think for a lot of our listeners who are involved in the cannabis space, the psychedelic sector is obviously uh, a natural point of interest as well. And so uh, on this conversation today, we wanted to really dive deeper into the history of the industry, but also kind of uh, also get into our personal experiences with psychedelics, you know, how we think the industry is going to evolve and, and kind of go from there. So with that, Ben, thanks again for joining. Would love if you could just uh, provide a little bit of introduction uh, on yourself and your background. Well, absolutely. First of all, it's a, it's a pleasure to, to have this chat, Jordan, and, and appreciate you uh, kind of going outside of some of the, the ordinary topics and, and stretching a little bit here. Um, so so to, to give kind of a quick, a quick background, um, you know, I, I spent about a decade first climbing the, uh, what we might call the, the academic achievement ladder um, and got a, a bachelor's and master's at Penn State and came out to UC Berkeley, did a PhD and, and a postdoc there, all in um, engineering or interdisciplinary fields of engineering. And um, so I kind of saw, saw what that game was about and, and was kind of ready for a new game and, and spent, spent the, the next decade or so uh, climbing what we might call the, uh, the capitalist achievement ladder <laughs> um, and starting, starting a bunch of companies. And uh, I think probably two of the, the better known ones would be Lucera Health, which uh, came out with the, the first at-home COVID test earlier this year and uh, went went public shortly thereafter. Um, and Power.io, which you mentioned, which um, provides uh, website tools to help small businesses grow online. Um, and, and we exited that um, uh, just a few months ago this year as well. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll just add to that. I've been, you know, an angel investor over the past few years, um, including some interest in the in the cannabis space and kind of that the larger um, consciousness and, and mind, mind opening, heart opening kind of space. And I think that's how we, we, we got, uh, connected originally. Um, so, so that kind of takes me to, to where we are today. Absolutely. That's fantastic, Ben. And so, you know, as you mentioned the consciousness and wellness space, I mean, what was there, a, a driving kind of event in your life that really got you more interested in the space and psychedelics in particular, or was it more like of a gradual evolution? Yeah, that um, it, it's an interesting question. I think, you know, to, to provide some context, um, I, I grew up in in suburban Pennsylvania in uh, pretty much the '90s, '90s, early 2000s, and and looking back, that was that was you know the the height or uh, the, the still ramping up of of so-called war on drugs. Um, 
And, you know, I was thinking the other day, I don't know if you, you remember this or saw this, there was this like ad campaign that was running, I think in the eighties and nineties as well, like different versions. And they would, this guy would like hold up an egg and, and uh -huh. like very seriously, you know, this is your brain. And then he'd crack it into a pan and then his up of this frying egg and this is your brain on drugs. Um, and so this, this was a kind of programming that I think, you know, many of us in, in this, this generation kind of grew up with very strong, like drugs are bad. Uh, kind of very very clear message, and um, uh, I certainly took that programming to heart. I didn't I didn't try uh, any any strongly you know psychoactive substance except for you know the the good drugs, the caffeine and, and alcohol that you know half of us are, are addicted to. Um, until I was about 30, 30 years old, I was living in San Francisco, and I think I reached a point where uh, my curiosity had had kind of uh, finally outweighed the, some of that childhood programming. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I got a, a cannabis uh, card. It was this was kind of before legal legalization. So you had to go in and, and get a card from a doctor. Um, and, you know, we, we usually don't talk about or think about cannabis as a psychedelic. Um, but certainly it was a, a very strong teacher in, in showing me that there are um, what we might call non-ordinary non states of reality, right? There, there are mm -hmm. other ways of, of being and, and perceiving the world. Um, and, and that kind of started, started getting me into a space where I could see kind of my own thoughts, my own mental patterns kind of, you know, floating by like a cloud and, and not, not being so, so caught in, in the, the thoughts that, that were typically caught in all, all day. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that was really my, my first introduction. Um, and if we, we fast forward a few years, uh, you know, I was running Power.io, which is, a, you know, as, as anyone who's, who's run a startup knows, it's a real, you know, 24-7 kind, of, uh, kind of effort. Um, and so a few years in, I finally was, was ready for, for a vacation, my first vacation in probably two or three years. Um, and so I, I went to Peru and I ended up on an ayahuasca retreat. Mm. Um, and an ayahuasca, for, for those not, not familiar, is... A, a brew of plants. It's a tea, essentially, um, that has been uh, drunk in a in a ceremonial context for for at least thousands of years mm -hmm. um, in in several parts of South America. Um, so this is kind of a, a traditional, uh, you might say, shamanic type medicine, mm -hmm. um, and and that was a really really profoundly shifting experience. Um, and not, not that, you know, I didn't, I didn't come back and I wasn't going barefoot into the office and you, you know, you can see, I don't have dreadlocks. Um, <laughs> I, I was still, I was still able to, you know, come back and, and play this, the startup game and, and operate, operate effectively in the world. But, um, it kind of took me down this path that is really, um, just, just brought a lot of peace into, into my life. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and just something that, that at this point I, I feel compelled to share with others because it's, it's just an amazing amazing tool, amazing technology that's in our world that, um, that we're really just finding out about in, in our kind of Western culture. That's fantastic, Ben. And, uh, you know, a lot of ways I think we can take that conversation. And I certainly do remember um, that commercial you're talking about, you know, this is your mind <laughs> on drugs, you know, and I think my path is, it has a lot of echoes of similarities, right? So I grew up in the suburbs of Cincinnati, you know, was inundated with that same idea of drugs or horrible, you know, and, and, and we'll get into what, what we consider drugs versus medicine later, but, um, you know, and, and I think in psychedelics in particular, you know, you heard these ideas that you can, you know, think you fly and you'll jump off a building or, 
you know, it sticks in your fat cells for 20 years and you'll just be driving and have a, you know, regression of these past experiences. So, you know, I think that fear really pervaded a lot of society. And so that's why I think it, you know, one of the main reasons why I thought it'd be great to have this conversation to really just help destigmatize the substances and, and let folks know that, you know, there are really fantastic benefits if you're taking them in the right set and setting. Um, so anyway, just to kind of quickly give, you know, my background with, uh, with psychedelics and cannabis as well, you know, um, experimented with cannabis occasionally during college, but it really wasn't until I moved to Colorado about five years ago that I became a regular consumer. And it's actually, I think, been a, a really helpful substance for me in getting off of alcohol um, and, and focusing exclusively on that. And, you know, on the psychedelic side, I, uh, I had my first experience at Burning Man, actually, back in 2015, which was about as cliche as it comes. Um, but, you know, I was I was terrified before just because of all the things I'd heard. And, you know, thankfully, I'd, I'd had a really close friend who uh, had had some experiences herself and she kind of got me comfortable with it. And that first experience was was really enjoyable, but it was taken, I'd say, more in you know, a party context, like a lot of people today still take it. So not really fully understanding the implications of what these substances can do. Um, and then fast forward to call it 2018 when Michael Pollan and uh, Tim Ferriss started, you know, really shining a, a great light on all of the resurgence and research that's being done in the history of the substances. You know, I got I got a renewed interest in them, you know, naturally as the cannabis industry, I think kind of segues into psychedelics, it made sense to start familiarizing myself with them. And so, you know, I had a number of experiences over the last few years um, where I think, you know, didn't have a full ego dissolution event, but had a lot of you know, very introspective, reflective moments that I think helped me work out a lot of issues with my own ego, with my own insecurities on kind of the mental health side. But then I think the, a part of the conversation that doesn't get enough focus, which you touched on earlier, is I also think it really improves creativity. I think it, you know, problem solving. I, I don't know. I, I feel like I've, I've learned to connect dots in ways that I didn't beforehand. And then fast forward to actually earlier this year, I had uh, my first experience with, you know, what, what I'll call full dissolution of the ego and, you know, connected to a higher level of consciousness, which, uh, you know, without getting too far into it has just given me a renewed sense of purpose and love and respect for life and this planet and doing everything possible to improve the future. So, I mean, you know, obviously want to get into the risks and not point, not point, uh, you know, uh, rose-colored glasses on the on the substances by any means because there are certainly risks which I think we should touch on but you know I think long story short is I, I personally they've been nothing but positive for my life and I'm really excited about building the future of this industry and really helping to see what these substances can do for humanity as a whole yeah I I really resonate with that with that sentiment and and thank you for for sharing sharing your journey I know in this context you're you're often the the question asker and and just receiving, but I think there there's a lot a lot to give as well, and you know appreciate to hear hearing the journey. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, you know, from there, would love to talk a little bit about uh, what are some of the key psychedelics that people you know may be familiar with or have heard of. You mentioned ayahuasca, obviously. I think LSD, also known as acid, um, psilocybin, which are magic mushrooms. Uh, mescaline are some of the ones that really come to mind. So we'd love if we can kind of dive a little bit and, and kind of uh, differentiate each of those. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing that comes to mind, we, we talk about, um, you know, you mentioned psychedelic industry or, or market. And 
Um, and what, what is this market? And, and the way I, um, I see it, there's really kind of three, three different branches and it might be worth just, just kind of outlining that for, for a moment in, in kind of how this is likely to evolve over the next, next few years. Um, there's, there's kind of the, the clinical model we could say, which is, you know, you go to a, a therapist or a, so, someone that is in some way uh, licensed to assist you in working with these substances. Um, and, and that model, so let's, let's call that model one, the, the kind of clinical model. Um, there's the second model, which is what I was talking about a little bit when I talked about going to, to South America, which is more of the traditional model. And that's um, people coming together. It could, it could be one person, it could be a group of people uh, coming together with some, some experienced facilitator, we could say, and that, that might be someone playing more of a, a shaman type role, or it may be um, just, just kind of a helper or a sitter. Um, and, but there's still a very intentional setting, like people are coming to do, uh, to do healing or, or do deep inner work. And this is a, a kind of, um, a, a second context that, that we're finding and see, seeing kind of grow he, here in, in the U S as well, as well as around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the third one is, is kind of the underground market, which is, um, kind of the, the everything else. And, and that can look more like a a clinic, like it can look like someone sitting for someone as, as a therapist, it can, it can look more like a kind of an underground version of a, of a shamanic ceremony, um, or it can look like, as you, as you mentioned at Burning Man, you know, kind of a, a recreational model where mm -hmm. the intention is to have fun and, and we still are gonna, gonna treat these substances with, with respect and, and think about the context, but um, the goal is, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with re recreating ourselves, re recreation, if you, if you pull that apart. Um, and so depending on which context we're talking about, um, the, the substances or the plants that are worked with might be, might be slightly different. Um, so in, in the clinic, which is the most kind of above ground, and as we talk about the industry, if we're looking at this with kind of investor hat on, um, that, that's kind of a, the rapidly growing area in the, in the next few years um, with, with Oregon's uh, legalization of psilocybin, which, which I'm sure we can talk about a bit. Um, so the, the kind of three substances that I think about in, in a clinical model, um, one is actually ketamine, which is already pretty widely available. I think there's at this point, probably around a thousand, maybe over a thousand clinics in the US and uh, you know, various states uh, that, are, that are working with ketamine in a, it for, um, you know, for mental, typically depression or, or kind of other mental conditions that you might wanna work through. Um, so, so that one's kind of the, the most, the furthest along, um, we see MDMA is, is kind of right on the horizon, um, with, with an organization called maps, um, has, has done uh, a tremendous amount over, over multiple decades in getting that to be toward approval as, a, as an FDA approved, uh, medicine for psychedelic assisted therapy for, um, PTSD and, and kind of related conditions. Um, so, so that one, that one, we're looking at, you know, probably, two, you know, two, two years or so in, in terms of, of approval there. Um, and then psilocybin is um, likely to be kind of following that in terms of FDA um, approval, and um, in, in, in specific states like Oregon was the first state um, has has already slated that to be used in a clinical setting in. Um, you know, in, in a year or two. So that, that's going to be coming pretty soon. So, so those are kind of the, the three in, in that model that are, that are the, the kind of the furthest along 
um, for kind of the various reasons of how they were developed and the whole regulatory process. It's not necessarily to say that those are the, the best medicines to use in that context, but um, because of the, some of the history, that's, that's where they are. Um, now, now, ayahuasca, for example, is, is typically not used in that context, and that's typically going to be more in the, in the traditional model of um, uh, more shamanic, more ceremonial, or, or church-like. Um, so, you know, the, it, it's like we, we have all of these, these wonderful, wonderful characters that are, that are out there, these different medicines, um, and uh, as well as these different contexts. And, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say, you know, they're, they're all for everyone. Um, I think, I think to, depending on um, kind of an individual and, and where, where, where they're sitting um, in, their, in, their own, in their own mind and their interest and their kind of resonance with these different substances or different technologies, um, I, I think some might be more, more appropriate than, than others in a, uh, you know, in, in a particular phase in, in someone's life. Yep, I think that makes total sense. And it seems like, to your point about the work that's been done at MAPS and, and psilocybin, it seems like MDMA and psilocybin will probably be the first ones that people have access to. And, you know, would love to get your thoughts on if you think those are the appropriate starting points. You know, I think in, in my view, and I, I recently listened to Rick Doblin from MAPS, uh, did a podcast on, on Lex Friedman, and he was talking about a lot of these kind of distinctions around how long they last around, you know, how cerebral they are, you know, how intense they are with obviously ones like ayahuasca and DMT being more intensive and that kind of thing. So for folks who maybe haven't um, ever taken psychedelics, but uh, are interested or curious, do you have any recommendations for kind of first steps on how they can obtain them legally and safely and specific substances that you'd recommend over others? Yeah, sure. I think we could talk a bit about, well, I guess, I guess we might as well dive into some examples. I think um, you know, MDMA is as Rick, as Rick Doblin has has kind of, you know, he, he's been working on this for many years and has thought about this a lot, a lot longer than either of us have. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think MDMA makes a lot of sense. Um, one from from as you mentioned, the the time span. You know, so, something like um, a mescaline containing uh, plant like um, San Pedro or, or peyote can can last for some you know 10, 12 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, is is just uh, not not super feasible to work with in a in a clinical setting because it, it becomes tremendously expensive, requires a tremendous amount of time, and so MDMA and psilocybin are both, um, you know, fairly reasonable in that you know maybe four four ish hour time frame where you can go in and, and have a session. Um, so there's a certain kind of just practicality there that that works with those medicines. Um, MDMA in particular is such a uh, gentle and Kind of heart heart opening or heartwarming kind of medicine. Um, it's it's something that it's uh, I would say it's pretty hard to have a, a really bad time working with MDMA if you're if you're in a safe a safe well supported container. Um, it, it's hard to have a bad time because it really just brings you to and I and I use bad in quotes. It's you know kind of the the, the extra judgment layer that we want to put on it. Right. Um, uh, so I, I do, I think that that is kind of a, a very gentle introduction into um, these kind of non-ordinary states of consciousness and um, being able to, to look at, you know, we've, we've all experienced some trauma, like you don't get to be an adult in the world without, without having some trauma from, from childhood, from our relationships, rejections, you know, all, all these different, different ways that, that we go in the world and, and get hurt in, in various ways. 
Um, and, and it really lets us kind of take a look at, at what's going on under the surface. And um, if, the, if there's trauma, if there's uh, stuff that we're kind of carrying from the past that, that, would, that isn't serving us, that, that we could let go. It kind of gives us a way of, of looking at those um, in, in a very gentle way and, and kind of allowing, allowing our, ourselves to clarify and, and kind of shift how we, how we want to greet each day and, and live our lives. Um, so, so I think that that is a, a very, um, you know, gentle and, and, and great, great introduction to, to medicine. And um, I think psilocybin is, is also, you know, and, and of course, with, with all of these medicines, um, the, the dose is, is, is extremely important. So, you know, you can have, and even we're talking about cannabis, a, a large cannabis dose can be just as psychedelic or, or just as uh, as strong um, and potentially, you know, incapacitating can be extremely positive, can be extremely, um, you know, damaging or scary um, without without the right context um, and and really kind of the, the right dose for for where you are in your mindset. Um, so, you know, with that being said, I think um, psilocybin tends to be a, a little bit more gentle um, at, at reasonable doses, where, where, for example, ayahuasca can be a a, a stronger and more kind of diving into the deep end of the pool, for, for example. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not sure why ayahuasca is, is the one that has kind of really resonated with, with me and on, on my journey thus far. And, you know, maybe it's just that, I, you know, I'm, I was trained as such a, a, a rational kind of right brain, <laughs> left brain, you know, engineer that I, that I need an equally strong um, <laughs> substance to, to balance out and, and kind of find that intuitive um, heart mind that, that, that is, you know, almost invisible in, in some aspects of our culture just need, needed yeah. that balance for, for me personally. Yeah, <laughs> no, that makes total sense. And, you know, I think one of the great things about psilocybin in particular is that's, I think where we've seen the most regulatory change, right? So it's now decriminalized in Denver, Santa Cruz, Oakland, DC, Oregon, it's fully legal and sales will start in 2023. So I think that you know, obviously decriminalization is not full legalization and getting the product itself still is tricky. But point is, it's good to see that there are starting to be legal avenues that people can take these substances and really, you know, experience their effects firsthand. Um, and you made a great point about, you know, drug and dosage, which I really want to dive into further, because uh, I think that'll kind of lead us then into the history of psychedelics, help people understand why they were made illegal in the first place. Uh, with a, uh, the Controlled Substances Act, but I do think that there's two distinctions that uh, people tend to conflate, um, and so I think it's important to clear those up. So the first being the distinction between drug versus medicine, the second being illegal versus legal substance, right? And so what I mean with the first breakdown is the line between what's a medicine and a drug is dosage, right? So any, almost any substance, if you have too much of it, becomes very dangerous. I mean, water, for example, you have too much water, you can die from that, right? But, you know, even for more typical medicines, right, like aspirin and painkillers and that kind of thing, obviously, if you have too much, it becomes very harmful. And that's when it can become uh, a drug. And one of the biggest issues with drug prohibition in general, and why I've kind of consistently beaten the horn that drug prohibition causes way more problems than it solves, uh, but it's specifically around this dosage question, right? And that when you're buying something illegally off the black market, you don't really know the dosage that you're getting. So that can really obviously have significant impacts on um, 
on what you, you know, experience, obviously. And in LSD, I think in particular, I'd highlight because the dosage here is very, very small. I think the typical recommended dosage is about 100 micrograms, right? And so uh, it's very difficult to control that when you have no idea of the source product and where you're getting it from. So I think that's one of the reasons that can cause issues. Um, and so I think now we should probably get a little bit more into the history of the war on drugs. And, you know, Timothy Leary is one of the important figures in the history of psychedelics. And he, he wrote a lot about, you know, the reason people can have bad trips is because they didn't take the right dosage or because they weren't prepared for what they were experiencing. But then taking a step back, uh, the distinction between legal and illegal, right? This was something that was really created back in 1970 under the Controlled Substances Act, which was passed during the Nixon administration. Uh, and, you know, we can discuss this a little further, but as, as history has proven, the substances that were included as controlled sub as schedule one substances like cannabis, like MDMA and uh, LSD and psilocybin, a lot of the rationale for that had nothing to do whatsoever with the medical uh, medical uh, efficacy of those substances, but rather had much more to do with political and racially driven motivations, right? And so the point is, just because a substance is illegal does not mean it's a drug. And conversely, just because something's legal does not mean it's a safe medicine at any quantity. And I think we've obviously seen that with uh, the opioid epidemic, you know, and I think people in general would resonate with the idea that alcohol is, is generally a more harmful substance to individuals and to society than is cannabis, right? So I think it's important that people break free from these preconceived paradigms and, and stigmas around substances that have been illegal for the last 50 years and really understand the full cultural and historic context of them. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 funny because we're we grew up in in kind of the 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 product of of this history that you're talking about, which is which is really fascinating, and I'm sure I'm sure we could talk about it for hours. <laughs> um, but it's um, yeah, it's it's just interesting how these you know essentially it's it's a myth myths the the myths and stories that our culture hands to us, um, and and we we believe them, and I, I think. Um, as, as you mentioned, we're we're kind of in what feels to be this wave of kind of collective realization that perhaps some of these myths and stories that we've been told um, are are really aren't aren't true. At least they aren't true for our generation. Aren't, aren't true for us. Um, and and there's kind of a, a, a sort of re re understanding of of some of the things that happened in uh, in the the 60s and 70s. Um, and I think you know what what. What I like to do is actually even zoom out further. If you if you zoom out to just humans on this planet living in living in various cultures, um, the the vast majority of them um, over I'm talking about mul multiple millennia, kind of pre pre modern Western civilization. Um, you know, many of them have used um, psychedelics or or mind altering plants or or substances as as an important part of their culture. Um, and and it's it's amazing how diverse this is. I mean, you can look at the the Greeks had uh, the the Eleusinian mysteries, you know, mm -hmm. among others. Um, in the Americas, there's a, a ton of different tribes. In the South, we were talking about ayahuasca. Um, they're mescaline containing cactus, cactuses in in North America. The the psilocybin containing mushrooms in in Central America. Um, you know, it, it's it's actually hard to find cultures that that didn't use. Um, some sort of, of psychedelic material. So, so we're in, in a way we're the the exception. It's kind of the, the yeah. opposite question of wait, what is it about our culture that we've 
completely banned a, a certain subset of plants. Um, it, it's kind of an interesting reflection that we could we could also, you know, philosophize about for a while. But you know, a, a lot of the what what seemed to get us, at least in my understanding, to kind of our our modern the modern way of 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 of, of legalization or, or lack thereof, is that because we had this 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 culture where um, psychedelics came in quite quite suddenly to to a mm -hmm. culture that didn't have. You know, as, as I mentioned, when I, when I went to, to Peru, there's a tradition, there are elders that are going to hold space and give you, give you a certain dose and, and really make sure that you have a, a safe, we might say, initiation, you know, into working with these, these types of plants. Um, and when psychedelics were introduced into our culture through Timothy Leary and, and others, mm -hmm. um, they kind of lacked, lacked an el elders or lacked containers. Um, and that, that did lead to um, conditions where sometimes people were doing them in unsafe ways or dangerous ways, and also a, a very equal and opposite fear reaction, um, which happened with with the establishment, um, you know, in, including the political establishment that that got quite quite scared of um, what these what these substances would would kind of suddenly do to the culture, mm -hmm. and that kind of polarizing environment um, led to this this banning and you know them them going underground and. And being associated with the counterculture and right. um, has kind of led led to this this really what really feels like a, a dark age you know this kind of like dark ages for for multiple decades where um, very little research has been done um, and you know this you just you just think about how many how many people could have been cured from from depression and PTSD and, and all these other conditions um, because this was really uh, such a dramatic uh, kind of shutting the books or, or kind of a, a book burning on psychedelics. Uh, yeah. when they came into our culture. Yeah, you know, and I think that's a great perspective to have is to really flip it on its head and not say, why should psychedelics be legal, but rather why has our culture in the short period in the history of humanity and civilization decided that these substances need to be made illegal? And, you know, we've, we've made a number of references to Timothy Leary, and I'd love to give a little bit of my understanding of kind of what the uh, the background of the history of psychedelics was obviously I wasn't around in the in the 60s, but you know from from uh, my reading and this is this is my understanding. And Ben would love if you'd hop in to, to correct anything I may be misinterpreting. But you know my understanding was the beginning of the 60s was kind of this uh, confluence of factors where a lot of these ancient traditions, you know, throughout the Americas in particular, were starting to resonate with the academic community. And so folks like Timothy Leary, like uh, Stan Groff, you know, Rick Doblin and, and others among them realized that these could have huge implications for you know, psych, uh, psychology and, and mental health improvement and the like. So anyway, Timothy Leary you know, came to Harvard as a psychology professor shortly after having a very profound experience uh, on, uh, uh, I believe it was psilocybin in Mexico. And then anyway, decided to start doing research with graduate students uh, uh, with both psilocybin and LSD. You know, the early results of those findings were, were really uh, impressive and, you know, had had some really dramatic findings. But um, unfortunately, his um, uh, partner, Richard Alpert, at one point gave uh, some psychedelics to an undergraduate student, which was against the rules that they'd agreed to with Harvard. Richard Alpert got fired. So then Timothy Leary quit in resignation. The two of them moved to New York and started kind of doing um, a lot of psychedelic experiments, you know, outside the purview of an academic institution. Then this kind of spread 
culturally across the country, you know, folks on the West Coast started, uh, I'd say, taking these psychedelics very rapidly, very uh, unintentionally, unconsciously. And so this kind of led to this huge backlash, wherein Richard Nixon at one point called Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America. Timothy Leary was later caught with half an ounce of marijuana uh, trying to take it to Mexico, and they tried to lock him up for 40 years. So it created this huge cultural backlash that led to psychedelics being included uh, as controlled substances for the last 50 years. Uh, until finally, you know, some of the folks who had been doing research during this time, but you know, in a more measured, more scientific approach, you know, kind of continued the research, and then you know, we're able to say, "Hey, guys, we need to revisit this." There's a lot of great work to be done, and so, um, and Richard Alper, interestingly enough. Uh, later became a gentleman named Ram Das. Uh, he took the learnings he had under psychedelic experiences, moved to India to learn from uh, gurus there and, and really incorporate Eastern spiritual, uh, Eastern spirituality, brought that back to the Western society. And then I'd say has been really an instrumental uh, figure in building Western spirituality, which I think could be reflective of what the future of psychedelics can have for our culture, right? Where we look at psychedelics as a way of combining Western allopathic medicine with more integrative medicine from the East. So including psychedelic therapies, including meditation uh, and the like. So, you know, really interesting background, but uh, yeah, Ben, what, what are your thoughts? Am, am I missing any of the key details? I there? mean, that, that, I know that was, that was like an awesome, I don't know how long that was, 60 second <laughs> summary of, of uh, really a lot of the key points uh, of the, of the, the whole movement. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Ram Das because he's, he's just been a, a wonderful, wonderful teacher for me as well. And, and I think points to, um, you know, the, the kind of the opposite of your, your brain on drugs being, being the frying pan um, that we were talking about earlier. It really, it was an, a, a tool that was able to get his mind to a, um, a really a place of peace to, to the point that he, you know, after his phase of kind of experimentation, um, he only really rarely worked with psychedelics um, because, you know, there, there's another another great gentleman, Alan Watts, who used to speak about this. Um, this basically once you get the message, you you hang up the phone, yeah. uh, which is you know th these these are incredible tools that give you a an insight into into yourself. It's in, into you know the the insights they give you are really are already present inside yourself, and they're just kind of the the telescope uh, sh showing you the way. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a, a, a great summary and, and a lot of wisdom there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it also kind of Timothy Leary's story can show you a little bit of the risks associated with it, where if you start taking them wantonly, if you're not incorporating the messages that you're being shown on these substances, then, you know, it can, it can lead to these backlashes where, you know, where there's a division between, uh, I guess, the law and, and individuals. But um so anyway, so moving uh, moving forward, we'd love to get your thoughts on what does the future look like for legal psychedelics, right? So first question I'd love to ask is, you know, do you believe that it's a fundamental human right to be able to explore your own consciousness? Well, certainly, I think um, exploring your consciousness is is actually one of the few things that no one can take away from you because if you can breathe, right? We can take a nice breath. Ah, like what, what a gift. Um, if you can breathe, you can explore your own consciousness. Um, and it, it doesn't even require an external substance. It just requires you to kind of let, let go of the stories that are, that are churning on in your mind and just kind of drop into the, the richness of, 
of the, the present moment. Um, but, but I think to get at deeper, maybe what's underlying that question, um, you know, I, I would say that it's, it's certainly a, an unalienable right to, to develop our own relationship with nature. Um, and it's, it's kind of insane if, if you were to, you know, come, come as an alien or, you know, come, come as, a, as an external species. And, you know, around my yard, I have some, some oleander growing. Um, and, you know, one leaf of that plant could kill me. It's an incredibly poisonous plant, uh, but it's, it's not illegal. We, we let that grow everywhere. Um, but, you know, for example, if I were to have a, a peyote cactus growing right next to it, that, that would be illegal. Um, so uh, I, think, I think we do have to reclaim our, our kind of relationship with, with nature. And uh, these, these plants and fungi have, have a tremendous amount to teach us. And, um, and we, we need to kind of re reclaim that right that, that's been, been lost. Um, and I think the only other thing I'd add there is, you know, the, the First Amendment protects our, our rights to, to practice religion. And uh, the, the word religion and churches have a lot of uh, stigma in our, in our culture. Um, but, but I would say anyone, um, if you were to sit with ayahuasca in, in a, in a you know, ceremonial context and, and say that that is, that is not a religious experience, um, I, I'd, be, I'd be very surprised. Or I, <laughs> I don't know anyone that, that is, you know, that has had that experience um, and, and not, not realize that there's, there's a deep kind of um, spiritual sort of level to it. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I think the short answer is I would say absolutely. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's really interesting you bring up and you'd mentioned earlier the, um, the road to Eleusis and the fact that, you know, a lot of ancient Greeks, it's, it's now widely known that, you know, folks like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, you know, this was a, a big part of the culture was to take um, this journey to Eleusis and have this transcendental experience with ergot, which is the substance that LSD is, is synthesized from. So it's, you know, it's not just a new phenomenon again. And, and I think there's actually some really interesting work coming out now. Um, there's a book called The Immortality Key that talks about mm. the idea that uh, the actual, the first um, sacrament was not wine, but instead was likely a, uh, a combination drink that included psychedelics. So really interesting uh, information coming out, you know, nowadays that, you know, again, points to the fact that we're, we're in this strange cultural paradigm today where psychedelics are illegal, right? We're the anomaly. We're not the, the norm of history. Yeah. And so as we think about, you know, moving forward and having a legal psychedelics infrastructure, you know, what are some of the concerns you have with for-profit companies getting involved, right? And as we look at, obviously, the, the pharmaceutical companies as, as the clear, uh, tangential sector. Unfortunately, a lot of the way that they make profits is by ensuring that folks stay hooked on prescription substances, right? And and they're they're more incentivized in a lot of ways to continue selling these medicines than for people to actually get healthy. And so I think that is uh, understandably so. A lot of the uh, main concerns for folks in the psychedelics industry, you've seen a lot of backlash against companies like Compass Pathways early on, where you know they're looking to. Um, to patent specific substances that are grown naturally in nature. And so just would love to get your thoughts on, you know, how you view the outlook for these kind of competing factions and uh, what we can do to make sure that these substances remain widely available and affordable for the masses. Yeah, that, that's absolutely a question that I think a lot of us that are, that are kind of lo looking at, at this as it unfolds kind of on the edge of our seats and, and, and this kind of question of how, how is the, the, the piping, the, the capitalistic machine, gonna you know, gonna potentially distort um, psychedelics or 
um, or on the opposite, you know, how can it help help kind of the spread in, in a safe in a safe way? Um, and yeah, there, there's certainly a few. Maybe this is another one I think we could probably talk about for hours. So maybe there's a few a few points that that come to mind that that we could talk about. I think. Um, you know, one is one is as you as you kind of alluded to this this approach of trying to create a monopoly or something like a monopoly, either on the su substance itself or um, or on on a protocol um, that that um, allows one company or, or a small set of companies to kind of control these substances. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, to to geek out for for one moment, because you asked kind of about earlier about the, the differences between these molecules. Um, a lot of the a lot of the the substances we're talking about are in the class of tryptamines, um, and so the the DMT molecule is, um, you know, I mean, you you can look it up on Google, like the structure of the DMT molecule, and you know, it's a little you know circle with a, with a little thing off it, um, and psilocybin is the exact same structure with with like an extra chemical group added to it. I mean, LSD is actually also uh, as, as well as mescaline, um, the same thing. It's it's a DMT molecule with some kind of extra stuff around it. Um, and so, uh, because of that, they're all these. These are all kind of we could say they're siblings. They're kind of uh, siblings that could take you to a, a similar place um, in, in the internal realm, but you know, slight, slightly different flavors. Um, and, and because of that, it's uh, you know relatively trivial for um, a chemist or a pharmaceutical company to you know, take, take psilocybin, it's not psilocybin anymore. It's, it's psilocybin, you know, it's mm -hmm. way more fly than psilocybin. We've added <laughs> a chemical group to it. Um, so, you know, that, that's one path that, that, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, that folks are going to try and take. Um, and I, I have trouble seeing how that's going to, you know, there may be a short term where someone's able to kind of get something through the FDA and, and have a, a short period of time. But um, because there, there are, there are such a, a wide variety of, um, of these substances that that you know have have tremendous healing potential, I've, I've trouble seeing like a long term a long term future where where some company has a monopoly because they're the, they're the only chemical or only substance in town. Uh, but that, that's certainly something that that you know folks are folks are talking about. Um, I do think it's quite interesting. You know, if you look back, like as you're saying, um, even even tobacco, right? Tobacco was used as a as a sacrament in in native native cultures here. And when that co comes into the capitalistic machine, right? Well, how do we get people to smoke as much as much as possible? Let's make cigarettes really cool. Let's get people addicted to it, and and it turns into something that actually is is very harmful to society. Um, and I, I can look at cannabis, and you know, I, I used to live in, in Oakland until recently, and um, there there's a period of time where you're driving down the highway, and I mean, f at least fifty percent of the billboards are you know, get, get cannabis delivery. Here's a different form factor of some drink or mm -hmm. smokable, whatever. So it really is incentivized to, to kind of keep us high all the time, which is, it's yeah. just really, um, you know, I, I would say not, not the, um, the respectful way to, to work with this medicine. Um, the interesting thing with psychedelics is that they are, um, really not, not addictive. And, and part of the, the experience isn't always pleasant. Like you're, when, when you're working with these, um, with these plants and these substances, there, there are parts that are, that are challenging that, that feel like doing work. Um, and, and because of that, you're, you're usually not, you know, okay, the next day, let's do it again. You're, you know, you, you kind of need some time to integrate the learnings. Um, so I think they, they kind of have a, have a built-in kind of resistance to that kind of dependency that, um, that the machine right might try and force on us. 
Um, I, I think you'll see a lot of a lot more push toward microdosing because microdosing mm -hmm. is hey, there's a way to to to, uh, to take take something every day or every few days. Um, so uh, so I think that's that's another way that we're going to see you know a, a possible a possible distortion. Um, I, I think it's also worth mentioning um, just access, um, which is you know who who is going to be working with these with these incredible medicines. Um, because if they're, you know, $800 a session and it's not covered by insurance, yeah. um, we're creating a type of medicine that is for rich people. Um, and, and so this is actually something that I think um, our, our kind of capitalistic machine might, might be able to take a crack at and, and make some progress on. How do we come up with um, types, of, types of centers or facilities where we're able to get some sort of economies of scale and, and automation and actually, you know, can I have a robot therapist that's certified and, and drive down the price where, where we're still creating safe containers because it's, it's incredibly important to have a, an environment that, that's safe to work with these medicines, um, but that can, that can bring the price down and, and make them more, more sustainable and more, more affordable to um, to folks who who really need these medicines the most, um, so so I'm, I'm very very interested to see how that how that kind of evolves. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what there? I'll give you maybe one or two more, and then I'll shut up. Um, you know, because this is coming out. This is not like cannabis, where there's going to be dispensaries and people are going to take psychedelics and go home. At least that that seems to be maybe a years a decade away. Um, we have this kind of situation where there's going to be a gatekeeper. There's going to be someone that you have to, you have to go and see and sit with um, to, to work with, work with the medicine, whether this is in a kind of a ceremonial, you know, church context, or it's in a clinical context. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, who, who's determining the gatekeepers, who, who are the gatekeepers? Do they have to be licensed? What sort of protocols do they need to go through to, to get licensed? Um, and there, there's certainly the potential for a sort of monopolistic kind of, okay, we're going to be the official gatekeeper and training program, and it's going to be very expensive to become a gatekeeper. Um, and that, that's kind of another, another thing to, to kind of look at and make sure that this access is, um, is, is as broad as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we can also talk, you know, as, as investors, as, you know, a fellow investor, we look at who, who's participating in creating these companies. Uh, you know, we, we've seen with cannabis, for example, that um, before legalization, that was largely an underground market that was, um, you know, disproportionately run by by people of color, by by people that are kind of left out of the normal system. Um, and so we can ask, well, who's who's getting the funding to build these companies? Is it is it is it equal? Are we are we serving um, these kind of underserved populations, or are they getting kind of kicked out and, and replaced by these billion dollar companies? So I think that's, you know, another thing to certainly be keeping an eye on as as this expands. Um, but, you know, despite all of these kind of, you know, potential worries, I, I would say I'm, I'm quite optimistic because at the end of the day, I think, I think the plants are smarter than we are. Um, <laughs> and I think it's, uh, as long as we're expanding access and, and providing reasonably safe containers, I think it's hard to screw up, um, the amount of wisdom that is, that's kind of contained in, in these plants, um, as, as we interface with them. So I'll, I'll, I'll shut up there, but those are just some, some things that I, that I think about. Yeah, no, those are some super valuable insights. Um, and, you know, one other question I had for you is you talk about, you know, the need for access, which obviously will include 
you know, getting licensed businesses and having the infrastructure up and running for substances like psilocybin. And I think everyone is, you know, eyes wide open at Oregon to see how that plays out. Um, but then how do you think about the other end of the industry that's more focused, I'd say, on pharmaceutical development and, you know, kind of figuring out new substances and seeing what those new substances can do? Question being, you know, what where should we be focusing more today, right, on building the infrastructure for the psychedelics we already have or creating new psychedelics to see what those potentials are or, or both? I think there's no there's no stopping that, that there's going to be both. I mean, it's it's clear that there's just a whole zoo of, of substances that can be created. And um, there, there's a gentleman by the name of um, Alex Shulgin um, mm -hmm. who, who spent uh, it was actually one of one of the few folks that had um, basically approval from the the DEA to be developing psychedelics over over this kind of dark ages. Mm -hmm. um, and he he published a couple of books that are just like compendiums of of a ton of different um, of molecule substances um, mm -hmm. that are kind of around the families that we're talking about. And you know he experimented on them you know with with himself and his family and, and kind of wrote about them. Um, so, so there's no doubt that there's always going to be new substances and there's going to be, you know, particularly in this environment, there's going to be someone claiming this is the, this is the new miracle, miracle drug. The other ones are a sham, you know, <laughs> and, and by the way, we've patented it. Um, and, and I think we do need to be dubious about kind of, kind of the, the claims there, you know, because yeah. for, for me, I, I put my, my trust in um, these kind of um, substances that have uh, you know, as we're talking about, these have thousands of years. Uh, the the mescaline cactuses, for example, there's um, evidence of them six thousand years ago being used in in wow. ceremonial context, which is, I mean, really six thousand years, uh, really kind of mind blowing. Um, so there's just a lot of history um, that you know we we can run clinical trials and and kind of get get some idea of results. But when something has been uh, been used safely in a culture for, for that amount of length. Uh, I kind of trust that that type of clinical trial more more than anything else, um, and so you know I I'm more interested in kind of the the expansion of of access and safe containers for um, the incredible medicines that we do have, while recognizing that you know there's there's no stopping innovation. People are going to continue to come up with new things sure. for for years to come, and and who knows? There, I'm sure there's some incredible things out there that you know if we're talking in ten years, they, no, oh, can you believe we didn't have you know. 10 meo dmt or right. <laughs> whatever whatever the next thing is yeah totally uh it'll be you know it's a really exciting time for the industry i think to your point you know the plants are smarter than we are and you know we'll, we'll find a way to at least get to a better regime than we currently have today you know i'm sure there's going to be hiccups along the way there'll be things that could have been done better but at the end of the day as long as more people are getting access to better mental health options then you know i think we all win long term. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm into that. <laughs> well, Ben, thank you so much for joining this conversation. It was super fun. Would love to have you back on the podcast at some point as the industry continues to uh, evolve and, and check back in. Yeah, Jordan, I, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time and and kind of play, playing with me on this topic. And if anyone is still listening, I, you know, pre appreciate you for coming along for the ride. And um you know, I, I think you, you mentioned Michael Pollan. If this is kind of uh -huh. a, a new topic to, to anyone listening, I think um, How to Change Your Mind um, is, is a, a fantastic book and kind of providing a, a deeper dive into some of the history we've been talking about. And 
um, you know, could, could be a good place to start. And, you know, I'm, I'm also Absolutely. happy, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. My name is Benjamin Ross, I think on there, ha happy to chat with anyone about, about any of this stuff or investing or, you know, any of these games we play together, but, you know, re really appreciate it and uh, excited to see where this all heads. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ben, and uh, have a great rest of your afternoon. You too. Take care. Uh -huh. Take care. Bye-bye.